Section 9 of The Spirit of American Literature. This is a LibreVox recording. All LibreVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibreVox.org. Recording by Daniel T. Miller. The Spirit of American Literature by John Albert Macy. Poe. Part One. No man more truly than Poe illustrates our conception of a poet as one who treads the cluttered ways of circumstance with his head in the clouds. Many another impoverished dreamer has dwelt in his thoughts, apart from the world's events. And of nearly all artists it is true that their lives are written in their works and that the rest of the story concerns another almost negligible personality. In the case of Poe, the separation between spiritual affairs and temporal is unusually wide. His fragile verse is pitched above any landscape of fact. His tales contain only misty reflections of common experience and the legendary personage which he has become as a creature inspired in other imaginations by his books, not a faithful portrait of the human being who lived in America between 1809 and 1849. The contrast between his aspirations and his earthly conditions, between the figure of romance he would fain have been and a man in authentic records stripped of myth and controversy, is pitiful, almost violent. This poet, with a taste for palaces and Edens, lived in sprawling cities that had not yet attempted magnificence. This bookish man, whom one envisions poring over quaint and curious volumes of forgotten lore, owned no wonderful library, not even such a, quote, working, unquote, collection, as a literary man is supposed to require, but feasted on the miscellaneous riches that fell now and then upon the arid desk of the hack reviewer. This poet, with a taste for palaces and Edens, lived in sprawling cities that had not yet attempted magnificence. This bookish man, whom one envisions poring over quaint and curious volumes of forgotten lore, owned no wonderful library, not even such a, quote, working, unquote, collection, as a literary man is supposed to require, but feasted, on the miscellaneous riches that fell now and then upon the arid desk of the hack-reviewer. This inventor of grotesque plots had no extraordinary adventures, none certainly that make thrilling anecdote. Capable of Chesterfieldian grace of style, an adept in the old-fashioned southern flourish of manner, he left few, quote, polite, unquote, letters, and those few are undistinguished. To follow Poe's course by the guide of literary landmarks, 
is to undertake a desolate journey. As his artistic self is apart from things, so it is apart from men. In his criticisms, it is true, he is found in open and somewhat controversial relations with the writers of his time and vicinity. As editor, he had dealings with the world of authors and journalists. But his acquaintance among the, quote, literati, unquote, includes no man of letters who is now well remembered, and implies no possibility of flashing exchange between his imagination and another as brilliant. He never met his intellectual equal in the flesh, except Lowell, whom he saw only once. Irving in Sunnyside was not nearer than Irving in Spain. Not a friend was qualified to counsel or encourage Poe in his work. Not a neighbor in art was competent to inspire him. He was the flower of no group of writers, but stands alone, original, aloof. The isolation of Poe from the best minds of his day is not well understood by those who have not a correct geographical conception of America in 1840. One of the most authoritative English reviews expressed surprise that a recent book on Boston omitted from the chapter devoted to literatures the name of Poe, who was born in Boston and was the finest of American poets. The intellectual life of the only greater Boston that has produced literature was as remote from Poe as was Victorian London, and he was the only important critic in America who understood the relative magnitudes of those two centers of light. His caustic opinions about the Bostonians, which seem more discerning to us than they did to our New England fathers, are witness to his detachment from the only considerable movement in American literature of those dim, quote, provincial, unquote, times. Whatever influence contemporaneous thought exerted on Poe came from books and not from men, not from experience with the world. Though a few reflections of his contacts with life, such as the English school in William Wilson, are to be made out in his stories, and though in some of his essays a momentary admiration or hostility of a personal nature slipped a magnifying lens beneath his critical eye, yet the finger of circumstance is seldom on his pages. The echoes of human encounter are not heard in his art. The nature of Poe's disseverance from life is one of the strangest in the annals of unworldly men of books. He was not among those who, like Lamb, transfigure petty and dull experience, or those who combat suffering with blithe philosophies like Stevenson. 
He was not a willful hermit, nor was he among those invalids who in constrained seclusion have leisure for artistry and contemplation. He was a practical editor in busy offices. He no doubt thought of himself, Mr. Poe, as urbane and cosmopolitan. He had knocked about the world a little. For a while he was in the army. He was effective and at ease upon the lecture platform. He meditated rash adventures in foreign lands until he apparently came to believe that he had really met with them. At his best, he was reserved and well-bred, aware of his intellectual superiority. Sometimes, perhaps when he was most cast down and hard-driven, he met the world with a jaunty man-of-the-world swagger. After he left the Allens, he was on the outskirts of social groups, high or low. His love for elegant society unfitted him for vagabondage. His lack of worldly success, if no other limitation, forbade his entering for more than a visit the circles of comfort and good breeding. But no matter what his mood, or what his circumstance, it did not affect the quality of his work or the nature of his subjects. When he wrote, he dropped the rest of himself. And with respect to him, artistic biography may well follow his example, and documentary biography may confess its futility. No biographer thus far, not even Mr. Woodbury, has succeeded in making very interesting the narrative portions of Poe's career. It is a bare chronicle of neutral circumstance, from which rises the more wonderful an achievement of highly colored romance, poetry of perfect, unaccountable originality, and criticism the most penetrating that any American writer has given us. Perhaps it is his criticism, with its air of maturity and well-pondered knowledge of all the literatures of the Orient and the Occident, which makes it seem the more singular that he owed nothing to universities and scholarly circles. The Allens took him to England when he was six years old, and put him in a school where he learned, it is fair to suppose, the rudiments of the classics and French. He went one term to the University of Virginia, and a few months to West Point though the one institution was founded by Thomas Jefferson and the other by the United States government, it is no very cynical irreverence to withhold from them gratitude on Poe's behalf. The most significant record of his life at, quote, the university, unquote, is that which shows him browsing idly in the library. His most profitable occupation at West Point was writing lampoons of the instructors and preparing the volume of verses for which he collected subscriptions from his fellow cadets. He was not at either institution long enough to receive whatever of culture and instruction it had to offer. He was self-taught. 
He read poetry when he was young, and began forthwith to write it. As a military cadet he had precocious and arrogant critical opinions. At twenty-four he appears with a neat manuscript roll of short stories under his arm, which caused the judges of a humdrum magazine contest to start awake. From this time to the end he was a hard-working journalist and professional storyteller. He pursued his work through carking, persistent poverty, amid the distractions of inner restlessness and outward maladjustments. His poverty was not merited punishment for indolence or extravagance. He was industrious, and deserved a better wage than he received. He was not an obscure, unrecognized genius, waiting for posterity to discover him, but he, quote, arrived, unquote, early, and was popular in his own day. His books, however, had no great sale, for his pieces appeared in the magazines, some of them more than once, and the demand for his work was thus satisfied to the profit of the magazine publishers, rather than to the profit of the author. He lived laborious days, and he lived in frugal style. He spent little money on himself, but handed his earnings to his mother-in-law. Whatever else was sinful in the sprees which had been over-elaborated in the Chronicles, their initial cost was not great. When he went into debt, the lust he hoped to gratify was the insane desire to found a good magazine. His wildest dissipation was the performance of mental jugglery for the applause that he craved. He spent weeks making good his challenge to the world to send him a cryptogram that he could not decipher. When he reviewed a book, he reviewed it. He examined it to the last rhetorical minutia. Griswold's opinion that, quote, he was more remarkable as a dissector of sentences than as a commentator upon ideas, unquote, is a mean way of saying that he was a patient, sharp scrutinizer of workmanship. Mrs. Browning put it more generously when she said that Poe had so evidently read her poems as to be a wonder among critics. Poe had a mania for curious and unusual information. His knowledge was so incomplete and inaccurate that several critics in sixty years have discovered, with the aid of specialists, that he lacked the thoroughness which is now habitual with all who undertake to write books. But Poe's knowledge, such as it was, implies much reading, and much reading and much writing are impossible to an idle, dissipated man. This clear-headed, fine-handed artist is present and accounted for at the author's desk, his hours off-duty abundantly and confusedly recorded do not furnish essential matter for large books. If one without forewarning begins to read any Life of Poe, 
one feels that a mystery is about to open. There seem to be clues to suppressed matters, suspicious lacuna. The lives are written, like some novels, with hintful rows of stars. A shadowy path promises to lead to a misty mid-region of Weir. But Weir proves to be a place that Poe invented. He himself was the first foolish biographer of Poe. The, quote, real, unquote, Poe, to take an invidious adjective from the titles of a modern kind of biography, is a simple, intelligible, and, if one may dare to say it, a rather insignificant man. To make a hero or a villain of him is to write fiction. The craving for story has been at work demanding and producing such fiction. The raw materials were made in America and shipped to France for psychological manufacture. The resulting figure is an irresponsible genius scribbling immortality under vinous inspiration or turning neuropsychopathic rhymes. Before paranoia was discovered as a source of genius, wine received all the credit. But Poe could not write a line except when his head was clear and he was at the antipodes of hilarity. The warmth of Bohemia, Boulevard mirth, however stimulating to the other mad bards of New York and Philadelphia, never fetched a song from him. He was a solemn, unconvivial, humorless man who took no joy in his cups. If on occasion he found companions in riot, they were not café poets. Once, when the bottle was passing, and there were other poets present, he so far forgot himself as to say that he had written one poem that would live, The Raven. But this expression of pride does not seem unduly bacchanalian. One could wish that the delights of Stein-on-the-table friendship had been his. He needed friends, and the happier sort of relaxation. But what record is there of the New York wits and journalists visiting Fordham of an evening to indulge in book-talk and amicable liquor? The chaste dinners of the Saturday Club in Boston were ruddy festivals of mutual admiration compared with anything that Poe knew. The unromantic fact is that alcohol made Poe sick, and he got no consolation from it. But before this fact was widely understood, long before there was talk of neuropsychology and hydrocephalus, when even starvation was not clearly reckoned with, it was known in America that Poe drank. This fact became involved with a tradition which has descended in direct line from Elizabethan Puritism to nineteenth-century America. According to this tradition, poets who do nothing but write poetry are frivolous persons inclined to frequent taverns. The New England poets, to be sure, were not revelers, but they were moral teachers as well as poets, 
and that redeemed them. The American, knowing them, saw Poe in contrast, as the Englishwoman in the theater contrasted the ruin of Cleopatra with, quote, the own life of our own dear queen, unquote. And Poe, always unfortunate, offers a confirmatory half-fact by beginning to die in a gutter in Baltimore, a fact about which Holmes, the physician, can make a not unkindly joke. Besides, what can be expected of a poet who is said to have influenced French poets? We know what the French poets are, because they also wrote novels. Or somebody with about the same name wrote them. Alas for Poe that, in addition to his other offences against respectability, he should have got a French reputation, and become not only a son of Marlowe, but a son of Villon and a brother of Verlaine. Footnote Colonel Higginson, in his Life of Longfellow, says that Poe, quote, took captive the cultivated but morbid taste of the French public, unquote. The words, quote, but morbid, unquote, are not only a singular indictment of France, but an unwitting indictment of America, for Poe took captive the American reading public before France heard of him. Let us deliver Poe's work, if we cannot deliver his life, from international controversy. But even his work, accepted, individual, indisputable, classic, is troubled by another biographic folly. His debt to one Chivers. Chivers could not write poetry. Poe could. The debt is evident. End footnote. And Poe, meanwhile, with these brilliant but somewhat defamatory reputations, lived, worked, and died in such intellectual solitude that Griswold could write immediately after his death that he left few friends. It is the unhappy truth. Those who promptly denied it, Graham and Willis, show commendable good nature, but they were both incapable of being Poe's friend in any warm sense. Whether they were at fault or Poe was at fault, the fact is that Poe distrusted the one and was contemptuous of the other. What writer besides Poe, what writer whose life is copiously recorded and who lived to have his work known in three nations, has left no chronicles of notable friendships Think how the writers of England and France, with some exceptional outcasts, lived in circles of reciprocal admiration. Think how in New England the men of genius clustered together, how even the shy and reserved Hawthorne was rescued from a solitude that might have been bad for the man and damaging to his work by the consciousness that in Cambridge and Concord, in the rear of Fields' shop, were cultivated men who delighted to talk to him about his work, and whose loyalty was gently critical and cherishing. Lovcadio Hearn, who has been compared to Poe, 
had friends whom he could not alienate by any freak of temper, and those friends encouraged him to self-expression in private letter and work of art. Some such encouragement Poe received from J. P. Kennedy, a generous friend of young genius, and from the journalist F. W. Thomas, whose admiration for Poe seems to have been affectionate and abiding. But among Poe's intimates were few large natures, few sound judgments to keep him up to his best. Long after his death he was honored in Virginia as a local hero. The perverted biography of him, by Professor Harrison, of the University of Virginia, contrives to include all the great names and beautiful associations of the Old Dominion. But during his life Poe was not a favorite of the, quote, best families, unquote, of Richmond. As well think of Burns as the child of cultivator Edinburgh, or of Whitman as the darling of Fifth Avenue. At the height of Poe's career in New York, between the appearance of The Raven and the time when poverty and illness claimed him irrecoverably, he appears as a lion in gatherings of the, quote, literati, unquote. But among them, his only affectionate friends were two or three women. To the intellectual man who has no stalwart friends, who consumes his strength in a daily struggle against poverty and burns out his heart in vain pride, there remains sometimes the refuge of a home warm with family loyalty, full of happy incentive to labor in spite of misfortune, and able perhaps to cooperate with the genius of the household. Such refuge was not given to Poe. No man ever had a more cheerless place in which to set up his work-table. His wife was a child when he married her, and was still young when she died of consumption. His aunt and mother-in-law, who no doubt did her best with the few dollars which, quote, Eddie, unquote, put into her hands, was an ignorant woman and probably had no idea what the careful rolls of manuscript were about beyond the fact that they sometimes fetched a bit of money. Poe would have been excusable, if he had sought and found outside his home some womanly consolation of a finer intellectual quality than his wife and aunt were able to offer. His writings are graced with poetic feminine spirits, not unlike Balzac's early dreams of an angel woman, visions that suggest vaguely the kind of soul with which he would have liked to commune but he never found such a soul. He made several hysterical quests after swans, but they turned out geese, if not to him, certainly to the modern eye that chances to fall on their own memorials of the pursuit. None was of distinguished mind, and all were either innocent or prudent. If Poe, with his Gascon eloquence and compelling eye, rushed to the fortress of propriety. Nothing serious came of the adventure, and nothing serious remains. Only trivial gossip, silly correspondence, and quite gratuitous defenses. 
it is a barmecide feast for hungry scandal. What has just been written may seem a negative and appreciating comment on Poe's story, but it gives truly, I believe, the drab setting in which his work gleams. And by depressing the high false lights that have been hung about his head, we make more salient the virtue that was properly his, the proud independence of mind, the fixity of artistic purpose, the will which governed his imagination and kept it steadily at work in a poor chamber of life, creating beautiful things. However much or little we admire Poe's work, we must understand as a fact in biography that, from the first tales with which he emerged from obscurity to the half-philosophical piece with which, the year before his death, he sought to capture the universe and astound its inhabitants, his writings are the product of an excellent brain, actuated by the will to create. He was a finical craftsman, patient in revision. He did not sweep upward to the heights of eloquence with blind, undirected power. He calculated effects. His delicate instrument did not operate itself while the engineer was absent or asleep. Deliberate, mathematical, alert, he marshaled his talents, and when he failed, which was seldom, he failed for lack of judgment, not for want of industry. To labor for an artistic result with cool precision, while hunger and disease are in the workshop, to revise, always with new excellence, an old poem which is to be republished for the third or fourth time in a cheap journal, to make a manuscript scrupulously perfect to please one's self, for there is to be no extra loaf of bread as reward. The market is indifferent to the finer excellences. This is the accomplishment of a man with ideals and the will to realize them. Let the most vigorous of us write in a cold garret and decide whether on moral grounds our persistent driving of our faculties entitles us to praise. Let us be so hungry that we can write home with enthusiasm about the good breakfast in a bad New York boarding-house, and after it is all over let us imagine ourselves listening earthward from whatever limbo the moralists admit us to, and hearing a critic say that we have been untrue, not only to ourselves, but to our art. For so Dr. Goldwin Smith's ethical theory of art disposes of Poe. Poe, who was never untrue to his art in his slenderest story, or lazy-minded in his least important criticism. This confident man, who will measure the stars with equal assurance by the visions of poetry and the mathematics of astronomy, and set forth the whole truth of the universe in even compact sentences such as no man can make by accident, lacks bedclothes to cover a dying wife except the army overcoat, 
which he had got at West Point sixteen years before. Says Trollope, the most self-possessed day-laborer in literature, quote, The doctor's vials and the ink-bottle held equal places in my mother's rooms. I have written many novels under many circumstances, but I doubt very much whether I could write one when my whole heart was by the bedside of a dying son. Her power of dividing herself into two parts and keeping her intellect by itself, clear from the troubles of the world and fit for the duty it had to do, I never saw equaled. I do not think that the writing of a novel is the most difficult task which a man may be called upon to do. But it is a task that may be supposed to demand a spirit fairly at ease. The work of doing it with a troubled spirit killed Sir Walter Scott. Unquote. Yes, and it helped to kill the self-reliant Balzac, a man of magnificent physique and ten-man power-brains, intended, as Gautier says, to be a centenarian, but exhausted and dead at fifty, with twenty novels still in his head. If Poe's work consisted of brilliant fragments, disconnected Coleridgean spurts of genius, the relation between his labors and his life, as it is erroneously conceived, would be easy to trace. His biography of some things in it are underscored furnishes reasons why his work should be ill-thought and confused. He has not been sufficiently credited with sturdy devotion to his task. That must be his merit as a man. And the ten volumes of his work established it. His tales may be, quote, morbid, unquote, and his verses, quote, very valueless, unquote. They required to produce them, the sanest intelligence continuously applied. On Poe's uneventful and meagre life, there has been built up an apocryphal character, the center of controversies kept a world by a strange combination of prejudices and non-literary interests as ever vexed an author's reputation. Some of the controversies he made himself and bequeathed to posterity, for he was a child of Hagar. Footnote as late as 1895, fifty years after the event, Thomas Don English, writing from the serenely uncontroversial atmosphere of the House of Representatives to Griswold's son, showed that he still regarded as a live issue a quarrel almost as comic as Whistler's quarrel with Ruskin, though far less witty. End footnote. But the rest have been imposed on him by a world that loves art for talk's sake. Since he was a Virginian by adoption and in feeling, he has been tossed about in a belated sectionalism. Southerners have scented a conspiracy in New England to deprive him of his dues, even to keep him out of the Hall of Fame because he was not a Northerner. Englishmen and Frenchmen, far from the documents, 
have rescued his reputation from the neglect and miscomprehension of the savage nation where he had the misfortune to be born, and in pulling him up they have tumbled over backward. Only a year or two ago Mrs. Weiss's Home Life of Poe, a stupid but sincere book by the only living lady who knew Poe, threatened to become a matter of international contention. It was to certain British admirers of Poe, the vicious, slanderous voice of America, directed against her greatest genius. And it has been said, the newest fashion biography, the pathological, makes Poe a, quote, star, unquote, case, and further confuses the facts. Echoes of neuropathological criticism find their way to American Sunday papers, which serve Poe up as a fascinating disease, with melancholy portraits and ravens spreading tenebrous wings above the columns of type. It is certainly a mad world, and in it, even if he had been a trifle crazy, Poe would still have been conspicuous for his sanity. If Poe's spirit has not forgotten, then in its earthly progress it perpetuated hoaxes, that it courted Byronic fame, that it advertised itself as an infant prodigy, that it made up adventures in Greece and France, which its fleshly tenement did not in point of fact experience, that it took sardonic delight in mystifying the public, then it must see an omniscient retrospect, a kind of grim justice in the game which the world is playing with its reputation. Nevertheless, it is unfitting that a man who did little worth remembering but write books, who lived in bleak alleys and dull places, should be hailed up and down the main streets of gossip, that a poet who was, as one of his critics says, all head like a cherub, should be the subject of volumes and volumes which are concerned chiefly with his physical habits. The main reason for Poe's posthumous misfortune may well be examined, for an understanding of it is necessary to an understanding of any of the books about him. Moreover, it lies at the very heart of the institution of biography. We have seen that Poe was a friendless man. Griswold so affirmed just after Poe had departed, amid shadowy circumstances from a life that was none too bright to the eye of the moralist, nor clear to the eye of the world. And Griswold straightway proved his assertion, for he was by his own declaration not Poe's friend, that he was in accordance with Poe's wish, appointed biographer and editor of the collected works. A man not a friend and not in sympathy with the work was the only acquaintance Poe had to whom to entrust his literary fortunes after he was dead. In itself, a desolate comment on Poe's life. There is no other relation in literary history so strange so unfortunate as this. End of section nine. Recording by Daniel T. Miller, Elmhurst, Illinois. 
My blog is dtmiller at blogspot.com. That is D-E-E-T-E-E, Miller, at blogspot.com.